wonderful. Well, hello church. Hope you're well. Um, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel today. So if you want to get your Bibles out, if you have something to take notes with, whether that's your phone or whether you have a notebook, um, please get those out as well. It always encourages a preacher when he sees somebody taking notes. Uh, it's a wonderful encouragement. So do do that um, as we traverse through Matthew chapter 6 today because I like to think, I like to think anyway, that um, we as a church are growing. We are growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Uh, and as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord, you'll see today through today's message that the knowledge of God, that is our theological understanding of God, will grow us in our pursuit of God. It will inform our worship and our prayer. It will fortify our worship and prayer to the Lord. So I like to think that as a church that we take theology seriously. And if you are a student of theology, you will understand that as a human, your brain is like a sieve. <laughs> I studied theology, I still do. Um, I've done, I did a degree in theology, um, and I still have to go back and reread the things that I learned 20 years ago. And so this is why I'm a big advocate of notes. This is why I post my notes in the WhatsApp group and the Facebook group every week, uh, because I think these things are important, and I think that they inform and edify and build us as Christians. And that's what we do in HCC. We take the Word of God seriously. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to be camped in verse 7 and 8 today. Um, I am reading from the English Standard Version, but uh, you'll see that there are many different versions or many different renderings in the English, and uh, each is workable. If you have a New King James, you will have a good translation of these passages. If you have an NIV, you will have a good rendering also. Um, so we'll see why in just a moment. But uh, I, I'm going to just pray quickly uh, again for grace and strength. Lord, as we open up your word today, Lord, I pray that it would be like a feast set before us as your children and that it would nourish us, Lord God. Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to come through me, your servant, without me adding any color of my own to it. Lord, I pray that you would enable us as hearers of your word to also be doers of your word in response to what we hear today. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let's read, shall we, from verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I thought it was interesting that today, on Father's Day, we actually have a mention in our passage of the Father. And so I was really excited to see that. I think it's providential. I think the Lord uh, certainly worked this together for our good. So we're going to be learning today about the Father. Uh, equally, I want for us to ground this text in its proper setting. So when we read Scripture, 
we've got to understand the first question we ask of any verse isn't what does this mean to me? As a church, I want for us to be good expositors of the word, not just me as I learned, but also you, and to understand that the first question we ask of any scripture is not what does this mean to me, but rather what did the writer intend by this verse? What did the Lord intend when he said these things? So we attempt to ground the word of God in its proper historical and cultural setting. And so we must ground these verses in their setting, which is that they were part originally of Jesus' sermon on the mount. We are listening to part of the greatest sermon ever preached in all of history. This sermon which Jesus preached has informed Western governments. I don't know if you realize this, but the laws by which we live today have been greatly impacted by this one sermon given on a mount probably somewhere in Galilee 2,000 years ago. The entire civilization of Western Europe in the United States is built upon values and principles that Jesus expounded upon this mountain that many years ago. Isn't that incredible? So you're listening today to the greatest sermon in history, and it isn't mine, thanks be to God. So our text is from the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, actually runs all the way from chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel through to chapter 8. So it is recorded at length by Matthew. And Jesus at this point is teaching the crowds gathered on the subject of prayer. Now you might remember a few weeks ago I covered verse 5 and 6 in which Jesus warns against some of the practices of the hypocritical Jewish leaders who were praying publicly with great fanfare in order to, do you remember, in order to be seen by others. And now Jesus' warning turns from those leaders in the Jewish community. He now turns to warn against certain practices of the Gentiles or of the pagans. If you have a certain other English translation, you may see the word pagans there. Um, and that's also a possible translation. It comes from the Greek word ethnikos, um, which is, can be translated Gentiles or pagans, depending on the context. Now by pagan, obviously we have a particular usage of that word here in the West, and we probably think of somebody that likes to trek over to Stonehenge pretty regularly, uh, worships the moon and the stars, but um, actually it has a broader meaning in the Bible. Um, the meaning of pagan in the Bible is simply a word used of any non-Jewish religious practice. So any non-Jewish or any non-Christian religion religious practice is paganism, as the Bible has it. And Jesus says, do not heap up empty phrases like the pagans do or like the Gentiles do. He says they're not to follow their example. Now, if you have the ESV, you'll have that phrase, do not heap up empty phrases. And actually, that little phrase, heap up empty phrases, is a translation of just one word in the Greek, which is the word batalogesete. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Batalogesete. And it's what we call a hapax legomenon. If you're familiar with textual criticism or 
biblical studies. Uh, Hapax legomenon is a Latin phrase which means essentially that that word only appears once. It only appears once in all of the New Testament. So that makes the word quite difficult to translate because you don't have any other reference. So if you have a word like logos, which means word in the Greek, it appears all over the place and it has a bunch of different meanings. Or cosmos, the word for world in Greek, which appears lots and its, its meaning is dependent upon its context. And of course, its range of meaning etymologically. But when you have a hapax legomenon, a word that appears only once, it can be difficult to, for translators to really get to the depth of what that word meant because it's only appearing once. What we can deduce uh, is that Jesus follows that word up by saying that they will think, they think they will be heard by their many words or for their many words. So we do know that batologesete has something to do with lots of words, using lots of words. And actually, the word bata uh, is a word in Aramaic, which meant to kind of babble or to stammer. And people think maybe it, it was like onomatopoeic, you know, like rain pattering on the rooftop. Batalogesite was like to babble. And so Jesus is, is forbidding us from babbling like the Gentiles. Now, before we carry on, I, I do want to just make a few distinctions because we've got to be careful when we exegete scripture, not to come to the wrong meaning by some presuppositions that we bring into the text. For example, is Jesus here saying, don't use lots of words? Is Jesus forbidding the use of lots of words in prayer? Well, what if you're just quite a verbose person? Are you to kind of like not use the words that God has taught you in prayer? And what about babbling? Well, I don't know about you, but I find myself accidentally repeating myself over and over again in prayer. It annoys me. I keep using the words just all the time. You do that when you're like, oh, and just, and Father, just, we just, we just pray, Lord, we just, you know, is the Lord here forbidding that, you know, our sort of fumbling and stumbling in prayer? Well, I don't think that that can be the case for two reasons. Firstly, what do we see as a habit in the life of Jesus in prayer? What we see in scripture as a habit is that Jesus regularly disappears off for long periods of time in prayer. He walks up mountains at night. He stays out there for hours and hours and hours praying. And we can rightly assume that he's using words to pray. And there'll be lots of words. So he can't be condemning long prayers in the sense of, using words over a longer period of time, can he? Because he did that. Equally, my second reason why Jesus can't be condemning simple repetition is that Jesus himself repeated himself in prayer. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that he goes away to pray and he prayed exactly the same words. So Jesus can't be condemning something that we find him doing elsewhere in Scripture. Does that make sense? Yes. So... Jesus isn't simply condemning the use of lots of words. He's not condemning you if you can't stop using the word just or father in prayer. Don't worry. And he's not condemning praying the same prayer twice because he does that. So if that's not the case, then what is he condemning here? What kind of praying is Jesus warning us against? What did he mean to pray like the Gentiles or pray like the pagans? 
Well, I'm going to give you another tip here when interpreting the Bible. The best interpreter, this is not my quote, this is somebody much brighter than me, but the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. And thankfully, we actually have another text in the Bible that is going to help us to understand this text that we've got here today. On another mountain in the promised land, due west from the mountain that Jesus is teaching on in this passage, and around some 850 years earlier, we have a record in the Bible of one man, one man who stood alone for Yahweh against 450 prophets of the idol, Baal. And the story is found in 1 Kings 18, verses 20 to 39. If you've got a thumb in there, if you want to turn your Bible there quickly to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 39. Isn't it nice to be going to the Old Testament? I don't know about you, but I think we should do an Old Testament book soon. I'll give you a moment to get there. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 39. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, rather, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And when the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench around the altar as great as could contain 
two seers of seed. He put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the second burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know you, O Yahweh, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Amen. The prophets of Baal, I've no doubt, appeared very, very devout. We read that they raved on, crying out to Baal from morning until well into the afternoon. We're talking some five or six hours, and they've been raving, limping around the altar in, in weakness, cutting themselves. What a scene it would have been. <laughs> Quite a scene. Well, what do we learn from this? I want you to notice this. I, I want you to notice that it would have looked like these people were very, very devout, very devout followers of Baal. Therefore, it's clear to me that a, the truth of a religion, the truth of a religion is not determined by the zeal of its followers. The truth of a religion is not determined by the zeal of its followers. Why do I say this? Well, it's commonplace to hear an atheist say, how can you say that your God is the true God? People of other faiths are just as sincere and devout in their practices as if that's a knockdown argument. But truth is an objective reality. It has nothing to do with how zealous you are in the pursuit of what you think truth is. We have to be able to detach those two things, and the Bible's clear on this. Humans actually throughout history, I hope you realize this actually, humans throughout history have very often been more zealous and passionate in their pursuit and their worship of a lie than they have been in their pursuit of truth. We must realize this. This is the universal sinfulness of mankind. And without the grace of God, man's total inability to please God or to know truth. You'll know that less than a century ago, a whole nation was so zealous in their pursuit and worship of an idol and of a lie that they put six million Jews to death, thinking that they were doing the right thing. You may also remember that communist Russia, communist China, and many other communist nations put to death over a hundred million people in the last century, believing they were pursuing truth and justice. Humans very, very often are more passionate in their pursuit of a lie 
than of the truth. So passion and zeal have nothing to tell us in and of themselves about what is true. And notice, I think actually in the world that the more carnal and the more sensual, the more zealous people are in their worship of something, the more likely it is to be an idol. That's actually the weird thing about it. You only have to look around you in this month, labeled Pride Month, to see the zeal and the passion and the fervor with which everybody clamors to worship an idol, to put a rainbow badge on their logo. Oh, we're compliant. We worship just as hard as you do. Passion, fervor, and zeal are not what we use to determine what's true. The more carnal the worship, often the more obvious it is that that worship is directed, not at the truth, not at God, but at an idol. In contrast to the carnal, labored prayers of the priests of Baal, Elijah steps up, and what does he do? He prays a very short and simple prayer. O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you, you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back, and fire from heaven fell. Fire from heaven fell at this moment. Note that the length of the prayer, the show of devotion, had no impact upon the response. Baal's prophets, long prayers, bloodletting, shouting, no answer. What did Elijah do? He mocked them. He mocked their God. It's interesting, isn't it? What did God's prophet do? He poured water three times over the sacrifice. I love this. It's it's like the other story in the Bible of Gideon where God whittles down his men so that the people would know there's no way this has happened by fleshly means, you know? Pours water over the sacrifice three times. A ditch around it and then a short prayer and fire. Fire comes from heaven. I think it's interesting that the fire falls on this sacrifice at the offering of oblation. As you know, this is around about the time when Jesus himself was crucified. When fire fell from heaven on the perfect sacrifice on another mountaintop in Israel. Amazing. But that's a preach for another day. I want for us just quickly to notice this also about Elijah's prayer. It's not just the shortness, the brevity of the prayer... Um, it's also what he prayed. And saints, I want you to take notice of this. He didn't step up there and begin to pray concerning the problem. He didn't stand up and say, oh Lord, please help me. You've got to help me. I've got 450 prophets of Baal. If you don't show up now, they're going to kill me. He doesn't pray initially concerning the issue at hand. Neither does he stand up and say, I just release fire in the name of Jesus right now upon you. 
Instead, he starts by telling God who God is. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that is? That's theology. He starts by telling God who he is. He starts by using what we call the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word in Hebrew, which I believe Pete has preached on before a long time ago, for God, Yahweh. You are Yahweh, the God who exists. He starts with theology in his prayer. He begins with God, and then he works out to the problem. And how is it that Jesus suggests that we avoid babbling like the prophets of Baal? How does Jesus suggest that we avoid this? Watch this. By knowing who God is. By praying from theology. Note how Jesus says. He says, do not be like them. Then he drops two theological truths about God. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father, what's that? That's giving Yahweh a name, a familial name. Father. Your father knows what you need. There's some more theology. There's some more truth about God. What is it that he knows what you need before you even ask him? Strong and effective prayer is effective not because of us and what we can do to twist God's arm up his back and make him do what we want, but it's effective because it is prayer to the God who exists. The God who exists. And our confidence, brothers and sisters, our strength in prayer should be founded upon the knowledge of the God to whom we pray. And this is theology. Theology from the Greek. The study of, ology, theos. God. People say such dumb things about theology. And to be honest, a lot of theologians are jerks. So, (laughs) it's just true. So, I'm talking about ivory tower theologians. A lot of them don't really ingratiate themselves to the masses. And um, so, I, I think that's part of the reason why the church has distanced itself from theology. And therefore, we hear such silly things said about theology. Oh, I don't need theology. I just need Jesus. You heard that one before? I don't need theology. We don't need theology in this year. We just need Jesus. We just need to be passionate, fired up believers and preachers of Christ. Well, how can you define Jesus without theology? How do you even know who Christ is without knowledge of God? You can't have the Jesus of the Gospels without theology. Every single Christian is a theologian, whether they like it or not. We're all doing theology. As R.C. Sproul said, the question is not whether we do theology, but rather whether we do good theology. That's the question at hand. Are we doing good or bad theology? And so what are the two things here again to zero in on that Jesus tells us about God? What theology does Jesus want you to know to help you not to pray like a pagan? Well, number one, God is our Father. God is our Father. And number two, that our Father knows what we need before we even ask. So, if these are the two things that Jesus says, then what's the significance 
What's the significance of these two theological statements? And I want for us to recognize they are theological statements. Don't be scared of theology. You're a Christian. These things are revealed to you not by natural means of the intellect, but by the Holy Spirit and revelation. We never need to worry that we didn't do so great in school when we start to study theology because theology is revealed to our spiritual eyes by the Holy Spirit. What is the significance of these two statements that's going to help us not to pray like the prophets of Baal? Number one, God is your father. God is your father. And here we learn about this on Father's Day. Later on in this same sermon that Jesus delivers on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, I'm going to rep my dad a little bit now because it's Father's Day. Um, um, and I keep him awake. But <laughs> I remember growing up, it's all right, dad. It's, I remember growing up that me and my sisters, we came to rely on dad's taxi service you know, pretty regularly. Yeah, we'd be reliant on dad's, dad's taxi service. And um, it didn't matter how far away we were um, or how late at night it was. Um, dad would always be a total saint and he would pick us up wherever we were. Why was that? We didn't pay him any money. The reason why dad would do that was because our needs mattered to him. What we needed mattered to dad. Because of what he could get out of it? No, definitely not. All he usually got out of it was a smelly, ungrateful teenager sat in the passenger seat. So he wouldn't do things for what he could get out of it or for what he could then try and bribe us with the next day. But he would do these things because he is our dad. So then, if God is your dad, what does that mean? It means that he cares. He cares about what you care about. He cares about your worries, your dreams, your trials, and they matter to him. And they don't matter to him in a kind of detached way, but they matter to him in a very real way. As God the Father's children, the trials of a Christian truly matter to him. And he responds to our prayers as his children. As I say, not in a detached business-like matter, but in the manner of a loving father, of a dad, listening to his child pour their heart out. Now, if that doesn't encourage you in your prayers, I don't know what will. I don't know what will get you to pray more, knowing that he's a father and that what you say matters. Now, I'm a dad. I'm a dad. And I know for me, like, it doesn't matter what time my girls come in to see me at night. They can wake me up and I'm going to get up. and I'm going to help them with whatever they need. And even if my littlest especially isn't very good at communicating all the time yet, but even if they can't express themselves really clearly, even if the words are a bit garbled, as the grown-up, it's my job that I make sure that I get to the bottom of what their need truly is, right? So even if there's 
the communication's bad and the words are garbled. I am the dad, so I decode what's being said. I get to the bottom of the matter and I meet the need, whatever it takes, however long it takes. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not the world's best dad, no matter what cards I get, right? But God the Father is. I want you to realize this. Jesus is saying the same thing about God the Father here. And this should really hit us. This should really get us in the heart because he's our father. It's his prerogative. It's his job, his duty as a father to understand you when you pray. Even if your words are short, even if you garble them, even if they're not well put together, even if you're frustrated with yourself that you hate the sound of your own voice like I do sometimes when I'm praying. You feel like, oh, why, why are you talking like that? You know? He's your father. It's his job to get the bottom of what you're really saying. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's by a guy called J.C. Ryle, who was a, um, a C of E minister back at the end of the uh, 19th century, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, and a wonderful man, wrote a book called Holiness. Uh, but he says this, quote, Fear not. Fear not because your prayer is stammering, your words feeble, and your language poor. Jesus can understand you. Jesus can understand you. This is true of the Father. He can understand you. He can read the heart. He can see beyond the words. The second theological fact that Jesus tells us lines up with this. He says, your Father knows what you need before you even ask. I wish we would believe in the God of the Bible, brothers and sisters. I wish when we read Psalm 139, we didn't just take out the verses and use them about being knit together in our mother's womb, which are powerful, but also the truths in Psalm 139 about the amazing sovereignty of God, that all your days are ordained before you live them, from the first to the last. I wish we believed in the God of the Bible. Jesus ventures to tell us what kind of father God is, that he's almighty, he is sovereign, he's all-knowing, even of your smallest needs. There are a number of chapters that I want for you to read in your own time. There's a passage of chapters in Isaiah that we refer to as the trial of the idols. They run from the back end of the 30s chapter 30, uh, through until round about chapter 48 uh, in Isaiah. They're called the trial of the idols. This is where God puts on trial the idols of Chaldeans, the, the false gods, Bel and Nebo of the Chaldeans, to see if they truly are gods. And these passages are some of the highest theological passages concerning the nature and the power and the might of God in all of Scripture. And I think it's going to behoove us right now to listen to what God is truly like, what your Father is really like. So when you pray to Him, you'll know in your mind what kind of a Father He really is. Listen to this, Isaiah 46, verses 6 to 11. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. 
They set it in its place and it stands there and it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Hallelujah. That's why I love the song we sang earlier. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to save. God's not weak to save. God saves whoever he wants to save. And none shall turn his hand back. Nobody by their free will is able to thwart the purposes of God. I want you to know that. When we pray, we are not teaching God new things, are we? We're not teaching God new things as if he wasn't aware of what was happening around us. We don't need to teach God or to convince him to act as if he didn't want to. In our prayers, we mustn't think of ourselves like we're lobbying a politician, you know, trying to build up a case so that he'll act. When we pray, we're praying not to rouse God to action, but to worship him to submit ourselves under his power and care, to come under the shelter of his wings as our protector, as our father, to be intimate with him. John Chrysostom, who was an early church father, he deals with this question in one of his sermons and he says this, but if God already knows what we need, why do we pray? Not to inform God or instruct him, but to beseech him closely, to be made intimate with him, by continuance in supplication, to be humbled, to be reminded of sins. And finally, another passage from the trial of the idols in Isaiah that should encourage you today. Isaiah 41 verses 17 to 20 gives us such wonderful encouragement and knowledge about the Father and the heart of the Father. Listen to this. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, and they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. I want to finish with this. Do you consider yourself needy of God today? Do you need God? Do you hunger and thirst for him. That's all you need. 
Because your Father in heaven, who knows all things, who's declaring the end from the beginning, that means they've already happened in the mind of God. Everything is written, every single one of your days. Do you need this God? Are you in need of him? Then, if so, whenever you thirst, whenever you call on him, he will create streams of living water in the desert of your need. Isn't that wonderful? And why will he do it? So that the whole world will see just who your father truly is. That he is the Lord, Yahweh, the God who exists. I want for you to know, there's no promise from your father to answer the prayers of the full, those who think they've got it covered on their own. There's no promise in scripture that God will receive the prayers of the arrogant, that he will stoop down low to hear those who think that they can twist his arm up his back to do whatever they will. God's promises are to the weak. God's promises are those to those rather who need him, who have come to the end of themselves and fall upon him in their need. That's when the power of God's promises in scripture are opened up to us, when we reach the end of ourselves and we say, God, I need you, I am done. And he will open up to us a spring of water. And brothers and sisters, he has done. He has done. He has opened up the spring of living water in our wilderness of sin. Jesus Christ. A spring of living water bubbling up to eternal life. And it's a spring that only the needy will find. Isn't that true? Those who think they've got it all covered. To them, the gospel is foolishness. To them, the cross is folly. But to us, who see our sins, who know our transgressions so intimately and painfully, to us, we see the cross as a spring of living water, salvation. If you're in need of God today, call on him. Don't be afraid. He is your father in heaven. And he knows what you need before you ask him. I'm going to invite Pete to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything after we finish worship, please do come and see me. I would be happy to pray. But why, why don't we just stand if we're able right now? I want for you to just take a moment, actually, just in silence. Just close your eyes and in silence, I want for you to just take a moment to bring to mind what your needs are in this moment. However small they might be in your own eyes, bring them to mind and bring them before the Father right now. Oh Lord, we know 
that we have experienced many letdowns at the, heart, at the hands of earthly fathers in our, in our walk in this world. And Lord, sometimes through these encounters, we've come to believe that our needs don't matter, that we are not loved, and we're not watched over. But Lord, we pray now that you would come through your spirit and heal any pain, any wounds that we may have picked up through those experiences and that we might regain confidence at this moment in knowing you, our true heavenly father. We may know that he knows what you need before you've even asked it. Whatever it is that's in your heart now that you've given to him, he knew about it and it mattered to him. And so Lord, as we lift these needs to you, we thank you that as our father, it's your job to fix those needs. It's your job to meet those needs. You will nurture us through them. You will answer. You will not leave us alone. We thank you for this wonderful revelation. Amen. Amen.